0: Hello pod pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm your host Nicole Davis. This week my guest is Maria Kadabai who is head of programs at BAFTA where she represents them as the lead film industry voice and moderates most of their panels and Q&As. She's interviewed filmmaking talents such as Spike Lee, Jacques Odiard and Stephen Friars, as well as this year's Best Director winner, Chloé Zhao. We talk about how Maria took a roundabout way to studying cinema at university before getting an internship at the BFI, working at Al Jazeera as a journalist and then developing the membership and events programme at BAFTA, as well as how she prepares for Q&As and how she has adapted to interviewing talent through the medium of Zoom. Speaking of which, all these podcast interviews are recorded on Zoom, meaning the audio quality can vary, and this is one of those times where I hope you'll bear with. Here is episode 83 of Best Girl Grip. So where you usually like to start these conversations is just getting a sense of um, where you went to university, if you did, and what you studied
1: there. So I went to what was back then Queen Mary and Westfield College University of London it's now been renamed Queen Mary's initially I applied to do law because even though I loved film and literature and that's probably what I wanted to study my parents my mum particularly thought law could be a good backup plan thankfully I don't know if I say thank- thankfully I didn't get the grades for law so I picked Queen Mary's to go to it was my first choice and it was my first choice to study law there did not get the grades at all and so I thought when I got my A level results I thought I'd have to retake but oddly the day that they came out the university called up and they asked if I wanted to go there and study French which I'd never thought about I did do mm. French A11 I loved it but I'd never thought about it and they also said that I could study French with whatever I wanted to study it with English, drama, history um, so I picked French and European studies I just thought that like me kind of leaves a little bit of vagueness to it so I could pick different things and it turned out to be quite a blessing so it meant that I could pick any other units I wanted to do from the arts department so I just over four years picked every single film unit I could find and then you get to go away for a year um so I went to Paris for a year and studied French cinema so instead of going to my cinema lectures I used to go and sit in these tiny little art house cinemas and watch (sighs) lots of incredible films. Um, it was the mid 90s. And they showed every kind of festival film, but they also did loads of retrospectives. And then when I in my final year, the University of London asked if I wanted my degree changed to French with cinema, because I had done so many cinema units. And so they yeah, changed my degree. And I was the first person to graduate from Queen Mary's with a cinema degree. And then they since developed pure cinema degree. And so the first Uh, graduates of that cinema degree I think came out kind of three four years after I graduated my degree which was that's incredible (laughs) yeah it was great there was a lot of freedom
0: and so with you know that in mind the fact that you were pursuing cinema kind of modules and that was clearly a passion of yours was that just you know pure interest or you really felt like you wanted to work in film and that was what you were going to pursue after graduating
1: I've loved films since I was a child. I didn't really know what career I would want if there were any careers in. I'm not kind of from a family that, um, you know, we didn't have anyone working in the industry or working in film at all. Mm
0: -hmm. My mum
1: was like a nurse and a midwife and my dad had a garage. However, from a really young age, my dad was kind of obsessed with the moving image. We used to watch films with him on weekends and in the evenings. He was also kind of in the... I'm a child of the born in the very late 70s, but in the 80s, kind of when home video equipment kind of came into being, he was always the first to get it. He got lights and stuff and would always kind of be filming. And then I was that horrible, precocious child that would like steal the equipment, make really horrific (laughs) films. And at my birthday party, instead of having a magician, would make all my friends watch these awful films. (laughs) really really bad so i was always there was always something there but i didn't really even know what that was i was at 7 or 8 I didn't quite understand what i was doing and didn't realize well yeah i didn't think that it was a valid career option even though i loved it going to university and just seeing i was had been so enveloped kind of in hollywood cinema and kind of that fun cinema of the 80s and also then growing up in an indian household traditional kind of bollywood cinema Mm. I hadn't seen the world outside of that, except for kind of a little bit of kind of British cinema existed. And, you know, the, the other opposite in the extreme, kind of seeing kind of Ke- Kez and Ken Loach as a child being kind of the other polarity of it. But I didn't know anything about any other kind of world cinema until I went to university. And so how did you go about getting your first job in film? You know, how did you approach getting your foot in the door? so after university I did kind of the usual kind of summer jobs of being a runner and stuff and I did was a runner on some music videos I applied to an art college after university and did film production and photography for a year after I finished that I saw a job um, an internship at the British Film Institute and at that point I still kind of realized that BFI actually at that point didn't even make films and I, it was a So I applied for a role there and I got an internship for a year and a half on what was then and what still is apparently the longest ever (laughs) South Asian film festival there's been. It was an eight month South Asian film festival celebrating Mm. South Asian cinema and kind of in the UK Mm. from South Asia and diaspora. Mm. There was only four of us on the team. So then I got into programming. So programming and producing event and that kind of shaped the way a little bit for kind of the rest of my career.
0: What do you think it was about programming and event producing that sort of piqued your interest and you know made you you feel like that was something that you you wanted to pursue?
1: Oddly I think it's you get to see so much more than even a filmmaker would see in terms of you know in, in terms of kind of so you just kind of get a real um it's a real um it's a privilege basically, in a way because people trust you with their work they trust you with their work before a lot of people have even got to see it and you just get like I always say is you get to walk in you get to walk so many lifetimes every time when you watch mm-hmm. a film you get to see parts of the world you never do it gives you a real awareness of what's going out go, going on outside kind of your own your own world or your own circle but then I'm wondering how you
0: how you heard about I mean presumably you'd heard about BAFTA um, and at what point did a job there arise you know walk me through BFI to BAFTA
1: so it was with so the BFI was an internship so I was there for about a year and a half and then after that looking for jobs and then a few months after I finished there I there was a job that I sort of advertised at BAFTA so I was looking kind of to move into move in the same area Mm -hmm. kind of either going down the route of production possibly or going in the same route of programming and producing events and there was a job that I saw for an events and membership assistant at BAFTA that I applied for um and then thankfully got a lifetime ago Mm -hmm. it was it was and it was a really interesting hybrid because it was a hybrid of kind of what I learned was a really tiny team where was say tiny there was two people in it so one person that was that an events person and one person looking after membership so it was there mm. to kind of assist both of them
0: and and so then I mean you know you now had a program at BAFTA so I'm wondering if you can kind of talk me through that you know precipitous rise how did you go from events and membership assistant to the role that you're in now was it kind of a kind of a career ladder that was marked out for you in, in the sense it was kind of okay you you work in this position for this many years and then this is where you could be or did you kind of
1: carve that path for yourself so, the has changed so dramatically over the last kind of almost two decades. I mean, OK, so when we started, there was only maybe 25 people there. Wow. Now we probably have a staff of about 100. Again, don't hold me to any of these figures. I am <laughs> guessing them. So there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really, I'm not saying there wasn't any place to go. It's just because it was such a small team. There wasn't, there was always kind of, from within our, our team, but also from an organisation, there was ambition kind of to make the organisation um, relevant, global, to meet our charitable needs. And I've kind of always been a, t- a little bit ambitious. So just always think that kind of, you know, you have to in some way sometimes carve a path that you want to see and want to reflect. So my first few years of BAFTA kind of, it's very like, I think my job changed within the first six months because they realised that maybe my admin skills are not so great. But the stuff I do think enjoy doing is, like we said, kind of the um, idea of creative cohesive strands, creating kind of identity to what an events and a film programme should look like. It was with BAFTA, I think, in that initial period for about five or six years um, and the role kind of grew. And then I was very lucky. I was given more autonomy to um, kind of create programmes and strands and also Work on a far more international level, kind of after I think not kind of it's a celebration of obviously everything British but also global. At that point, obviously, I the think there was a point that, um, you know, there was a world outside, kind of outside of the UK and outside of the US that sometimes I kind of like I wasn't aware of until I obviously fell in love with cinema a deeper level, mm-hmm. kind of for the university. And for me, it was a real those first few years were just for me about exposing our membership to kind of kind of world cinema that exists beyond. And then I was at a film festival in Dubai and I met a team from Al Jazeera English, which is just launched um in the UK, was offered a job there to produce um and be a journalist on an international film show that they were doing. Wow. I didn't want to leave after either they had been really good great to me and I was still really enjoying the work I was doing and so thankfully both Al Jazeera and Bafta kind of said that I could do both it really complemented kind of each other Al Jazeera was completely was a completely international film show and I kind of got to do a lot of festival travel got to interview some in- incredible filmmakers but then obviously could bring a lot of that back to Kind of BAFTA, but they kind of yeah, they, they both worked, they both complement each other so well and really helped me kind of what well, Al Jazeera kind of turned me into i had never been a journalist, I'd never been a TV producer before, kind of never cut packages, but let me kind of develop that really quickly and hone my skills and that and what BAFTA brought was my kind of film knowledge and also event production.
0: And I mean, have you noticed in, in your time at BAFTA and, you know, at Al Jazeera, the kind of the rise of the Q&A? I feel like that's something that has become just a really big thing. Like you rarely go to a film now without having one. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if you can speak to what you
1: think is perhaps behind that popularity. I think that's twofold. So one fold definitely is kind of the rise of the Q&A has also kind of, I think, gone hand in hand with the rise of the profile of not only the BAFTA Awards, but also the um, Academy Awards, the Oscars, but also all the other kind of Mm. Guild Awards. It's an opportunity that, you know, Guild members, BAFTA members, American Academy members have to hear firsthand from filmmakers and practitioners about how something's made. So that's on a real industry level. And I think that's definitely kind of something that's dramatically kind of changed in the last five, six, seven years. Um, in terms of kind of the public appeal of q and a's who doesn't really want to hear first it's such a kind of it's a really it's like um such a unique thing to kind of be able to watch something and then i say it's unique it's not so like as you said it's not so unique anymore but to have the opportunity to kind of just ask how this was made how did you um how how do you do that shot how did you edit that scene that mm. costume that how did you know you know or just it's just it's such a luxury to be able to do that I think that in a especially in a world where now everything is so accessible and you can ask anything at your fingertips from anyone I think that if the film Q&A kind of hadn't moved in that direction kind of we would in a moving image that is usually so cutting edge in terms of its technology kind of it would be a miss not to basically be able to Kind of use that functionality as promotion, but also as perk.
0: Yeah, totally. I think as well. Like, I guess with podcasting as well, it's sort of the unmediated quality, right? Like, even even though, yeah, we we're saying you know that they're, they're replicable, but the conversation you get on that night it could be very different to one that you'll get if you watch that film the next night and get the director on another night. It's it's quite a unique experience to have, and it's also everybody wants to hear something that someone might not have said before. And then then I mean, coming back to um you getting the role as head of programmes at BAFTA, you know, how did that opportunity arise and and how did you approach it? Because presumably, you know, that, that could be quite a big moment if you had ambitions to to change what programming looked like at BAFTA. You know, was there something that you wanted to do when you when you got that role?
1: I think we moved a few we moved kind of in the last few years, we've our the department that I now work within is learning, inclusion and talent. And we've obviously had different incarnations, but we've moved how we relate to audiences and kind of events that we put on. We have worked really hard kind of on identifying those things. And over the last years, we've really been able to hone in on our different audiences. So we have kids, new entrants, new talent and in industry. So I look after our industry audiences across film, games and TV. For me, kind of the head of programmes within that is to was to really a cohesive program across all three sectors obviously that retain their own kind of sector specificity but also retain a BAFTA identity across three of them also I think people kind of like if there's always so much going on there are so many events there's so many um, screenings there's so many kind of networking groups there's so much going on that for me it was just Really about creating really simple strands that people understand, that people identify with, and kind of the uniqueness that we have is obviously in access to talent and access to our members or access to winners and nominees. And like you said, kind of in with the idea of the Q and A, it's an ask to people to hear firsthand from those. Obviously, we have the opportunity to ask people to do that, and so it was just using that uniqueness and. Kind of playing with that and I'm wondering then you know where does the process begin with with designing
0: a program and and planning what that is going to look like? Obviously you've kind of maybe got the spine of it as award season and maybe mm. who's being nominated, but beyond that, how are you you know gathering all those threads and and making them into something that is is simple and effective and
1: and cohesive? sure, so we have managers within the team that look after um the TV program and the games programs there's're not my especially as I look after our film program the idea for me is obviously to make it year-round and kind of as you've correctly said obviously kind of with award seasons it is seasonal and there is always far more activity around certain times of the year and that's just I don't want to say nature of the beast, beast may, has negative connotations that's kind of the nature of how the industry works at large but for me it was really about not making it so season specific to kind of make sure that it is year round so that our events program is something that people know month not even just kind of um the indus- industry and members at large but also the public. So it's just about kind of tapping into um continuity within it. So making sure that we have, you know, maybe a film specific masterclass a month we have. What's actually been really interesting, in fact, has been obviously this last year um, with the pandemic and everything that we've done kind of moving online, where before we had a kind of physical building and we obviously programmed people, members of the public could come to that. What's happened this year is that it's been oddly a lot easier to engage with far more people. You know, where we could have been maybe limited to say 250 people in a room, we... It's almost limitless now. And the nature of doing it online is obviously like this everything is recorded. So we obviously did record events in the past and make them available online, but I don't, wouldn't say that we record absolutely everything. Obviously, that comes with kind of a, a different set of limits, but now everything is recorded and put online, and accessibility has made it a lot easier for us to kind of oddly have more cohesion within. The program we've able to put, we've kind of within a week of going into lockdown last year, we managed to move our kind of events and screenings program online, and then develop a program for our members and participants of our initiatives, but also develop a public program at the same time. Um, and so, in that first kind of few months, it was really about those kind of uh, events that were more focused on mental health, on well-being more pastoral kind of events looking at financial repercussions of what the pandemic might do to the industry and then obviously moving into those kind of creative masterclasses for practitioners i was you know very grateful for all the events that there were i remember in the early days of the pandemic and you
0: kind of forget that someone has to you know be creating those you know of the moment and responding to this moment you know very rapidly because i think yeah it was so important to kind of feel like we were the film community was kind of supporting each other and that there was a backbone there to kind of help us help us through what was a really kind of quite turbulent time
1: it was um and what was really great about last year's often our film Q&A's that we have done have been traditionally for members only with, they're usually for voting purposes but we negotiated with uh different studios distributors where we could and where a film was ready available for the public to see on a VOD platform, if the Q&A could be made available to the public as well. Mm. And for the most part, you know, that's what what was agreed and what was done. And so that kind of is really kind of opened doors for I think the public and kind of allowed a side of back to the traditionally perhaps kind of more membership and industry focused to be mm. more public focused as well. And that way also I think grew appetites for different kinds of film and you know we've seen in the last 12 months obviously cinemas have been closed on and off there hasn't been that traditional kind of release of certain blockbusters um, or certain huge studio films but what there has been is this kind of wealth of independent cinema.
0: Yeah it hopefully feels like a breakthrough that will be sustained in that regard and obviously I mean speaking of the pandemic and, and events being online I know a big part of your job is interviewing all these kind of filmmakers and all this talent um, and I'm wondering you know if you could speak you know both before and after how how you approach an interview and, and perhaps how you've had to adapt that skill in the pandemic. So before when it was live,
1: I think the, the nerves don't go away in either way. Mm. In the live world, there is nothing like the energy of a live audience, mm. um, nothing like it. You can, and you can gauge a lot from how they're feeling, you know, how you feel the interview is going by kind of how the audience, not only kind of just reacting in, you know, vocal terms, but reacting in physical terms, you can, and until you know, yeah, you have those indicators of, that are telling you that you're doing really badly <laughs> it's going okay and then you've also got kind of that idea of um you know being able to throw it out to an audience and knowing that you know there are, could be some burning questions in there there's also the idea of kind of before you interview someone kind of in the live way you'd have a chat with them beforehand you'd have a chat with after there'd be a level of comfort there and you lose some of that kind of fun preamble that you have getting to know someone or getting to know mm. which way you, they might want the conversation to go. But I have found that audience questions actually are a lot more interesting online. Interesting. Um, and, there, and there are a lot more of them as well. I think there is, you know, often when you're in an audience, I'm never in an audience as much as I want to ask a question. I probably would be the last person to put my hand up to ask the question, mm. but there's something just so liberating about being able to type a question. No spectacle to that. So I found yet yeah, the audience questions have definitely been far more interesting, and there's been far more of them. Obviously, speaking to someone kind of when you don't know how it's being perceived is a little bit more difficult. I have found that people are far more open and oddly more relaxed online it's like we are right now kind of it's almost like I've invited you into my home like Mm. you're seeing where I'm sitting you're seeing kind of my decor you know and so when someone is in their own space they're automatically a bit more comfortable there is a different level of intimacy in this space that you would never get online you yeah like I said you've been invited into someone's physical space Mm. and so there are things that will people will say and talk about that they would ordinarily not have in the real world. And kind of when we were doing a Q&A that's live, you know, there would be someone's maybe publicist or their agent or their manager or a team of the other actors or director they've worked with, for instance. And there's a different kind of dynamic to that. You know, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but there are different dynamics that, that come into play. But I'm hoping there's definitely going to be a hybrid going forward and in terms of kind of preparation, I do like reading a lot of things. I still, I like I do like watching a lot of other interviews if it's kind of mm. if there have been interviews with that filmmaker, actor or HOD before, just to get a feel of who they are as a person. But I also like it to be a really organic conversation. And so while I might have some questions kind of prepared, they're probably more in my head or I often have a piece of paper and I write words down <laughs> just to trigger trigger my thought but I always think that it should always just be a conversation I think by nature I think I'm more curious than I am a journalist.
0: Yeah absolutely and I guess just being like invested in the conversation that is actually happening rather than the one that perhaps
1: you like would have
0: wanted to facilitate.
1: And then you never know you always get kind of the unexpected when you you know, when Mm. there is no script, because, you know, there's nothing more boring than a script. I'm sorry, obviously, in in filmmaking terms, there should always be, not always, but, you know, script is is handy. And I mean, it's
0: quite a unique skill. I know recently you've just done all of the kind of like the director sessions and, you know, roundtables with HODs and, I find it's a very different thing interviewing multiple people at the same time than it is obviously doing one-on-one. And is that something as well that you've had to kind of
1: navigate and learn how to do? I think that if it's the same people from one kind of film or project, then you know, that's kind of obviously quite self-explanatory, easy to bring people in with multiple kind of things like the, you know, multiple directors from say, I think it was last week with five different films. That can be, I wouldn't say difficult, it's just this just have to find commonality and what I really kind of have always tried to think that when someone listens to an interview or watches it back they want to forget that you as the moderator are even there or forget that who you are or forget your name because they want to. it's all about what they said and so it's about you being able to facilitate bringing bringing the best out of them to how to talk about their projects rather than Kind of, so it's almost like you're for me invisible, and that's such a conduit to kind of align. them. And I always find that kind of the conversations that happen amongst peer to peer are the most fascinating. So sometimes I just want to like kind of just be there, but will almost be a quite a bit listening. Kind of when like when it is kind of multiple project, multiple films, you just almost want to listen, be a listener. So you just want to like drop a little, a little nugget of something in <sighs> to allow them to kind of explore it themselves. I love
0: yeah I love those moments where you can see other people like nodding along and then like they interject to their own questions and it's yeah it's, it's always great to see that happen.
1: Well, the Q and A did last it was so lovely. So it was our five of our best director nominees from this year's um, Eve After Film Awards and Chloe Zhao um, who directed The Astonishing. No, Madeline got her notebook and pen out when Thomas Vinterberg was talking and I was like this is so cute I'm like it was so nice but she's just sitting there she's like "She was asking him questions so you do it that way too I was just there with her notebook and I was like yes this is what it's meant to be about (laughs) I mean you know but learning from each other and then I'm wondering you know if there's someone that stands out
0: as being a particular favorite or a particularly memorable interview that you've done in your time
1: as head of programs so many fun ones (laughs) I did a few years ago I did an interview with Timothy Chalamet and Daniel Clear together. I have seen which it. Was, oh, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. That was um great. They were just so good. Like both of them, I mean, wise beyond me their years, eloquent, articulate, but also they both talk about craft and process mm. so well. That's such a hard thing to do. The way that they were able to break it down to kind of not only an industry but a public audience was really unique and they were just they have so much love for each other that it was just a really fun thing a fun interview to do I also love kind of doing um some of those HOD interviews I really mm. love some of those really kind of craft things there is a interviewed um hair and makeup supervisor called Naomi Dunn who's worked on some incredible films and kind of her last bunch of loads well her last huge film I think we're was Spectre, she's worked on Bond and stuff but just kind of just it's that insider kind of like just of how you do these are how do you Mm. kind of with that day of the dead scene kind of how you have 500 people that you're doing make hair and makeup on your team and then also going down to the nitty-gritty of what makeup you're using and how you do it and just kind of all of that fun stuff so it's just I think Mm. so that that was that was a lot of fun to kind of really drill down on certain things. And then I guess I'm wondering, you know, is there something that you find particularly challenging about
0: the job? You know, if if the perhaps the best part is, you know, interviewing them and being on the stage.
1: What is the part of the job that you find um, most difficult? Not enough hours in a the day. There's <laughs> <laughs> always one. Well, it's hard. There's always that you just want to do so much. You just want to do. I think it's kind of what I've tried to really look at, kind of before in, my, in the early days of my kind of career. In the first week, it was more. It was always about trying to do everything. And not quantity over quality by any means, but quantity, and kind of just to kind and I think that was more of a personal um battle is in that you know you always have to do more 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 and what I have realized over the past few years is that it is about kind of really um kind of the quality of event and also the idea that they that they unique there is like a kind of, so there's so much out there already. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of what isn't out there you know you don't want to replicate all the great stuff that other people are doing everyone is doing some amazing things out there so it's about so i suppose yeah, come back to that kind of what's difficult but it's not what I suppose it's more challenging mm. is to make sure what our offer is is unique it's it is these industries are very very unique and we're really privileged to work within them and so not to kind of you know yeah belittle the experience of um the difficult experience of other people what people are going through at this moment and it yeah. should be kind of the moving image and the creative industries should be there to kind of enhance your life in some in, and in some way also kind of alleviate hopefully alleviate kind of stress mm-hmm. and pressure and it should be an en- enjoyment but on the flip side like I said at the beginning of the interview it should also allow you to experience lives that will never get to experience um, and given that we've spoken about
0: these kind of conversations that you facilitate, you know, uh, being about curiosity and, and asking questions, and, and I'm wondering, you know, how you stay curious, whether there's anything that you do, whether it is just about kind of nourishing yourself with culture or if there's anything else that you do to kind of
1: stay sharp and curious and energised in that way. Well, we could travel. <laughs> I used to, I did travel a lot, it, yeah. And I should read, now I will think far more about our carbon footprint because... Mm-hmm. I did, um, yeah, To traveling has always been something that since I was very, very young, my parents would always take us to really remote places. So as a child, when everyone was going to Spain or France, we would be up a mountain in <sighs> Yemen or kind of somewhere in Tanzania where my parents are from or in Cairo or yeah, they were explorers by nature as well. And so I kind of got to see a lot of the world through my parents' eyes with, with them which was incredible and kind of that really fed my curiosity that grew into a love of like food and politics and that culture and just I think yeah that's where the curiosity really comes from I just well some people call it nosiness it's just just wanting to like you know to see and do and experience everything I'd love to know if there's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your
0: career or something that you know maybe that you'd have benefited from uh, learning earlier
1: in your career. There's so many learning curves so many learning curves you never know I think one thing is kind of however much you plan how much you think you want your career to go in a certain direction it won't and so it's really it's important to kind of have to have goals it's important to kind of know where you might want to go but I think you should always look at kind of how you want to feel in a certain situation rather than kind of what your salary is or what your job title is or perhaps you're actually doing it's like how am I feeling when I'm doing all of these Mm -hmm. things Um, and I wish I kind of could tell yeah my younger self kind of yeah you know if you're content in a situation you're happy then that is worth so much more than kind of all of those other things and in terms of learning curves it would just be it's always continuous there is it's always it's a curve it's always a line it's always yeah you will learn yeah, spend your whole life learning and growing and that's the beauty of it I think yeah, the journey
0: being the goal. And then finally, I'd love to know what is a film from a woman director that you think is
1: a bit of a hidden gem? So I would probably think that kind of, I know everyone is obviously very aware of Miranaya, but Miranaya Salam Bombay um, mm. is incredible. I would say Deepa Mehta's trilogy, Fire, Earth and Water or Fire, Water and Earth incredible I've mentioned I think earlier Nadine Labaki, but Nadine so everyone know what name. but her first two films Caramel and Where Do We Go Now both incredible both like they are great looks at kind of if you're interested in kind of Lebanon but Lebanon kind of in a social context I would definitely look at kind of those those two films I love there's a Palestinian director called anne Shakir who I love her last one Worship again if you're looking kind of at the really, um, the real everyday implications of being kind of Palestinians within Israel, I would look at that. So, yeah, I would look at kind of worship as a real kind of look at kind of trying to plan a marriage, but when mm. you're an alien in your own country. So, yeah, that was Murania, Deepa Meta uh, Nadine Labaki, Amory Shakir to start with, but there are hundreds more. Yeah, just a jumping off platform. Thank you so
0: much for joining me on the podcast this evening. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. I'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. But in the meantime, have a wonderful week.